Hey folks, it's Chris Hewitt here. Uh, before we get into the second part of this week's bumper-sized, jam-packed, two-part edition of the Empire Podcast, a little bit of a heads-up for you guys when we get into the news section of this episode, which is pretty much right away. We discuss the just-announced sequel to Jerry Butler's Greenland called Greenland Migration. Now, don't ask me how, but we discuss this in great detail for a great amount of time. How great the amount of time? Well, I mean, it's in it's in the region of 10 minutes or so. Listen, only God and Jerry Butler himself can judge me. Anyway, because of the nature of discussing a sequel to a movie that just came out a few weeks ago, we do get into some pretty heavy spoiler territory. Um, and so if you haven't seen Greenland and you want to avoid spoilers for the movie, then... Skip from roughly the two minute mark to the ten and a half minute mark, and I think then you will be fine. For those of you who have seen Greenland, enjoy. Hello, Paul. Welcome back to the second part of this week's bumper jam-packed Empire podcast. In the first part, which you can go and listen to now if you haven't already, you will find interviews with Mila Jovovich and Reese Shearsmith, as well as the listener question and the beloved, beloved three-fact structure and much discussion of whether Batman likes to go downtown in Gotham, if you get my drift. But now the debate chat is out of the way. It is time for me, Chris Hewitt. And my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara, James Dyer, and Ben Travis, to plow straight into this week's movie news and discuss what's been happening in the world of films. And there is only one place that we can possibly start. It is the biggest movie news of this week, last week, the week before that, the month before that, the year, in fact, I would say. It is the news that Jerry Butler, Morena Baccarin, and Rick Roman Waugh are going to re-team on a sequel to Greenland. Yes. And it's going to be called Greenland Migration, because that's what you want. That's the word you want to put in your, your sequel. That's going to put bums on seats, isn't it? I feel that wasn't really sufficiently focus group. But um, this is exciting <laughs> and also a bit surprising, is it not? Because mm. like, I feel like I loved Greenland, but I don't think it, that many people saw it. Maybe I'm wrong. It doesn't feel like a lot of people saw it. It also doesn't feel like a film that was crying out for a sequel. But I'm quite curious to see what happens when they, spoiler for Greenland, stumble out of the bunker. And uh, this this is like a this is a, a trip. It's like a road trip movie, isn't it? It's a road trip across wasteland but, yes. of Europe. But not so, a wacky road trip like National a, Lampoon's European yeah. Vacation. <laughs> National Lampoon's Greenland Migration. <laughs> yes. Although you could have Eric Idle play the same character. So Jerry Butler keeps running <laughs> over this guy and he keeps, he's like a British tourist who's really polite and he keeps pissing blood all over the place. I, I, you know, you could do <laughs> oh, that. Boy. If this was a stealth remake of National Lampoon's European Vacation, but with Jerry Butler, yes, please. I mean, I'm already on board. It's mm. a sequel to the greatest film of the year. That's not all those other films that are better than it. But... I still had a, such a blast with Greenland. Yeah, such a blast. Same. I don't know how you can possibly continue that story. Um, mm. You know, not another comet, but what are you going to do? Here's my question. Yes, because the first one was very much a ticking clock film. That was what gave it propulsion yeah. and drive. And this one would kind of seem to not be that at all. So I'm a little confused. Well, th- imagine The Road, but with Jerry Butler. Yeah, you see, that 
doesn't sound fun. That sounds the opposite of fun. <laughs> it might sound a bit fun if it's Jerry Butler. Jerry Butler, the structural engineer. Uh, of course, yes, one of the world's best. But why <laughs> are they also in Europe, which was the epicentre of the blast, and not somewhere, I don't know, that might be slightly less devastated? That might be another question that we could usefully ask ourselves at this point. What's so the last place a comet would think to look, Helen? <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to dodge a sentient comet. Is that what it is? Well, that is... Certainly a position that you've taken. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All yes. right. There's so many questions, so many questions. So if, so many. if for example, uh, the, the comet does, I'm not saying it does in the movie. I don't want to give any spoilers away for Greenland, but to say, for example, that a comet does devastate Europe, there'd be a massive fucking crater. So how would you get around that? But what if, what if, you're talking about the propulsion and the ticking clock and all that. Mm. What if the devastation, the global devastation has triggered a day after tomorrow style ice age that's about to hit them and they have to kind of outpace okay, but, the ice age and there's a I mean, warm bit like so the Maldives is still okay far be it from me to quibble with the science of <laughs> the day after tomorrow but um as i understand it and i am not a climatologist but as i understand it well then um, you've disqualified day after tomorrow yourself. is totally ludicrous and you know climate doesn't change that way you tell and- that to weather hmm I would, but I don't think I need to because weather already knows weather doesn't work that way. So I feel like mm. maybe, you know, we don't base our science on the guy whose neutrinos mutated that one time. That's hey, all. that was a different <laughs> film. That was a different, was a different film. film. Roland Emmerich spoke Still. to scientists for the day after tomorrow and then nodded. Nodded and then when they spoke. Independently. And then wrote a different script, yeah. <laughs> and went away and did what he did. Look, now this is this is all good because you've got the first film. You have the comet, which which has come down or gone down, depending on your grammar. <laughs> and and in this film, like we've we've already come come down on the comet, and now he's just walking across Europe and like mm-hmm. a Euro trip. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I, I mean, like if he's he, this is one of my questions. I mean, he's in Greenland. Spoiler for the first film, he's got to leave Greenland and get to another continental mass, perhaps for where there might be more food and supplies and so on. Why would you go to Europe rather than America? Which, again, just to be clear, you're going towards the the area of most devastation instead of away from it. I'm just saying this is a one minor area that they'll need to clear up for me before I can get fully on board with the premise of this, no doubt, scientifically rigorous film. How would you get to America? How would you get to Europe? Apart from like, the bit of it that you're in. Okay, again, you understand that the Channel Tunnel doesn't go to Greenland, Chris. <laughs> Not yet, but he's a structural engineer. That is true. He is the world's best structural engineer. He's going to build a channel tunnel from Greenland to Madrid. If he's building the tunnel, why doesn't he build it back home? Because it's shorter to get to Europe. It's like the wrong trousers. So Jerry Butler's going to be in front of a train, throwing the track (laughs) in front of him as Uh the train goes from Greenland into Europe. And maybe he just wants to visit some of the great restaurants in Europe. Have you ever considered that, Helen? Again, fire, wall of fire, Chris, wall of fire that swept Europe, that blew mm-hmm. away the great restaurants of Europe. No? I, don't, I don't believe you. He will catch a ride on Snowpiercer. That's how he will get I was about to say, this sounds like a, a, a prequel to Snowpiercer where it turns out that Jerry Butler built the train. Um, oh my God. Oh, yes. Or at least the track. As, as someone who has not seen Greenland, there is a wall of fire across Europe. What if it simply cooked all of the delicious European food and it's basically like a foodie <laughs> road trip? That's what it is. Okay. Again, I don't want to get super scientific, but the, the funny thing about walls of fire caused by, you know, comets landing uh, on the surface of the earth is that they don't sort of 
tend to cook things to perfection. They, they often overdo it and that's and leave where the stuff skill comes in in the Michelin star the chef's hands. So cooking on an open flame is a big thing these days in modern cuisine. Of course, yes, of course. Uh, are you telling me really that you think Heston couldn't rustle up a good meal? For example, three star Heston Blumenthal mm-hmm. couldn't rustle up a good meal over the nice open flame of a wall of fire 400 feet tall. Well, I mean, not if he was being cooked by the fire at the time. You know, that's that's my no, concern, No, but he's in I a water bath. I, I, again, I don't think that this is how meteors work. Look, I, I feel like we're maybe getting off track here I, I, a little I bit. I enjoy the fact that Chris was like, we're going to keep each section to 15 minutes. We are now eight minutes and 53 <laughs> seconds into the Greenland 2 story. <laughs> I applaud that. I genuinely applaud that. <laughs> I just love talking about Jerry Butler. You know that. I know you, you know do. That. I know. So, and you oh, know what? That him. is probably the real reason is he just wants to go home to Scotland. He's had he it does. up to here with America. He just yeah, wants to go home. It. He wasn't doing an accent, as no. I remember, or if he, he was, I didn't notice. No, he wasn't. So, you know, it's fine. He just wants to go home to Scotland. He's going to be reunited with his accent, running towards each other across a, <laughs> a highland glen, the, the grass blowing in the wind. Yeah, because it's ash. That's why it's blowing in the wind. It's ash. That's what happened to the grass. Okay. Yes. So anyway, I'm excited about this. Uh, we may ha- we may have given away some of the stuff that happens in Greenland. Uh, I have been sitting, waiting for Greenland to come out on DVD and Blu-ray for a while because I I did a big old spoiler special interview with Rick Roman Wall. It isn't coming out, so I think I'm going to accelerate the process and hopefully put that up as a spoiler special uh, in the next uh, week or so, so people can listen to that. And if they want to know more, that gets you excited, doesn't it? For Greenland Migration, starring Heston Blumenthal. Very exciting. I feel like this was the Greenland spoiler special. <laughs> I feel like it just, it just happened before my very eyes. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Like, how do you talk about a sequel to a movie that ends in this way without talking about how the movie ends because I mean, that it ends in greenland is a little bit telegraphed i don't know if you noticed and it, also but, the uh... fact that hey the film that's about a giant comet that's going to hit earth includes a giant comet hitting earth i don't think is a huge this is true spoiler. we have given away this the location of the western europe western mm. europe so i'm afraid that uh, copenhagen is a goner sorry noma you were not long for this world. Uh, anyway, let's talk about something else. Uh, uh, see what I've written down here. A Batman Cunnilingus scene cut from Harley Quinn season three. I feel we have given that one <laughs> we a may, good old We licking. may have covered that. Uh, we, I think we, have, we, we came down on it hard. <laughs> Oh boy. What we haven't covered is, of course, Zoe Kravitz is making her directorial debut mm. uh, in a new thriller called Pussy Island, which is Batman's least favourite holiday destination. Uh, and this stars her and Channing Tatum. And it takes place on an island where, shall we say, sexual stuff goes on. She plays a cocktail waitress uh, and she's uh, her eyes on Tatum's a, um, a philanthropist and tech mogul who invites people to his private island where presumably they, you know, have kittens. Right. There's no way this movie's going to be released to the title. It's going to be Pussy Island <laughs> Migration, and you know it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. He, I mean, he's playing a, a tech mogul, right? So he I is, feel like yes. it's, um, he might be a bad one. I'm just going to go ahead I, I, and say. Yeah, I get that sense. I get that mm. sense. Uh, but, you know, it's, I feel that we have been deprived of Chanum on the big screen mm. recently. He's also in the lost city of D. So people on Twitter have been sniggering. Juvenile, <laughs> disgraceful, disgusting. Get your minds out of the gutter and be more like the Highbrow Empire podcast. So people huh. have been laughing about the fact that Channing Tatum is about to start in the Lost City of D and then segue smoothly into Pussy Island. 
But yeah, I'm just excited to see more Chanum on the big screen. Indeed, yeah. Anything else? There's a few other things. Um, there's a, a new movie called, currently called Everest coming, um, which is about George Mallory, who will be played by Ewan McGregor, and Sam Hewen as his uh, Australian rival, uh, George Finch, um, with Mark Strong as the head of the Royal Geographic Society, Arthur Hinks, who sent them off to try and climb it because it's there, of course, as Mallory famously said. Doug Lyman is the one making this. So clearly working with Tom Cruise for as long as he has, has just given him a taste for climbing high things. And uh, and mm-hmm. what better one than Everest? I mean, I think the the title will change given that, you know, there is a film called Everest. It's not even that old and it wasn't that good. But um, I'm interested to see what they can do. If you've seen any of the um, Mallory documentaries, it's a, it's a really fascinating story. So it could be quite cool. So he's going to make that before he takes Tom Cruise to space. I mean, it's very hard to tell. I mean, who knows? Tom Cruise could probably just go into space like on a Tuesday and be back. You know, it's yeah. quick. Be fine. Yeah. Speaking of major monoliths, uh, the Beatles documentary, there is an exciting update on that. Um, So as we know, Peter Jackson has been tinkering away for a long time on the Beatles Get Back, um, which is him taking loads of footage, like 60 hours worth of footage uh, from the Let It Be sessions right towards the end of the Beatles kind of lifespan. Uh, and it's this huge archive of footage that has never really been seen before, or especially not in its, in its entirety. Uh, and so this was planned to be a cinematic release. It was going to be a film. Uh, now it's heading to Disney+, Plus, but that is partly because it is a series. It's morphed into a three-part series. Each one is going to be about two hours long. And uh, within that six hours of footage, we are getting the entire uh, rooftop gig uh, that was the sort of end of the Beatles, uh, which has never been seen in its entirety, apparently. There's obviously various bits of recorded footage out there, but um, we're going to see the whole thing. And I, I, I kind of admire the fact that as much as it would have been nice to have this as a cinematic release and to hear those songs and, and those studio sessions through cinema mm. speakers, the fact that Jackson's just gone, do you know what? We have this insane wealth of material that is really, really fascinating. He's spoken a lot about how it tells a very different portrait of the kind of final weeks and months of of the Beatles' time together, which uh, there is an existing documentary that paints that as a kind of quite fractious time in the band. There's obviously been a pervading narrative about the fact that they all fell out and and we're all at each other's throats and that he's saying from all of this footage kind of wasn't the case and there's lots of lovely stuff of them like kicking back and hanging out together and mm. that it's going to be a very sort of human side to to the Beatles how is he not calling this Lord of the Ringos what oh. is he doing <laughs> <laughs> oh that would have been great honestly do I have to do everything myself PJ Ringo Kong no you're right Lord of the Ringos <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I'm very, 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 very excited about this. I've never seen Let It Be. It's very, very hard to get hold of, and I'm pretty sure it'll be impossible to get hold of now. I, I've just got a sneaky suspicion it will become unavailable, unofficially unavailable uh, as this takes its place. But yeah, massive, massive Beatlemaniac. Um, so I'm all over this. The fact that we get more footage than I thought we were going to have seen before, um, although I am thinking, well, where's the other 54 hours, Peter? Come on, seriously, <laughs> what are you doing? Stop shirking. Yeah, th- these are being released in November on sort of consecutive days. I, I can't pick them off the top of my head. It's something like the 25th, 26th and 27th of November. So each day they'll be adding the uh, the next instalment. So yeah, I'm going to basically bookmark out that entire week for Z goodness. 
Yes, very, very exciting indeed. Uh, also exciting is that Knives Out 2's ever-expanding cast has now uh, absorbed Jessica Henwick into its uh, blubbery mass. It's just like the end of society. It's just a, it's it's like just this huge wall of human flesh. Hang on, just hang on. No one in that cast is blubbery. It. No, but as they absorb more flesh, it becomes blubbery. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it's like, like, like the blob is growing exponentially. It's more like a skeletal wall, you know, like a... This is true. Sinewy, muscular, mm-hmm. well-built mm-hmm. wall. All something. I'm saying is that the cast of Knives Out have two have formed some kind of human wall, uh, right. unstoppable right. human wall that now must be taken down for the good of mankind. Uh... Can we let them make the maybe first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like a human donut, but a donut without a hole. What am I talking about? Anyway, <laughs> Jessica Henwick is in it. We don't know who she's playing or what the film's about. So there you go. But we're excited anyway. Hurrah. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, speaking of excited anyway, um, uh, Lord of the Rings, obviously the, the Amazon TV series is coming. It's been filming in New Zealand for, I think, three and a half centuries. But there is also a planned anime film, a standalone coming from New Line and Warner Brothers uh, called The War of the Rohirrim, which will deal with the building of Helm's Deep um, and will apparently focus on a... Uh, King of Rohan called Helm Hammerhand, which what? you know doesn't sound like what you want when you're riding a horse, but maybe this is a different kind of Rohan. I don't know. This yes. feels like a little bit of a flawed concept, doesn't it? Like we've seen the Siege of Helm's Deep. What's more epic than the Siege of Helm's Deep? Jerry Butler presumably coming in to do the structural engineering <laughs> of Helm's Deep. I'm not. I'm not feeling it. Who doesn't want to watch that? I mean, we Less. didn't get to see him do much engineering last time. Less as Helm's Deep. Don't you want to hear him say that and then, you know, kick a hobbit down a well? I do. I mean, look at the wall he built in 300 with nothing but dead Persians. I mean, you know, give him some actual stone. I think he could could accomplish something really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. I hear Batman never goes Helm's Deep. Oh, Ben. Look, I can't not. I, 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 I would like to put forth a motion to leave that in. <laughs> Title of your sex tape. <laughs> that is absolutely not being cut from the podcast. Uh, the, the thing that's exciting about this, right, is that obviously the, the Amazon series is going to be a sort of separate Middle-earthy thing, whereas this is sort of tied into the Jackson trilogies yeah. philippa boyens is is part of the team working on it and i imagine that means i don't know if we're going to see familiar characters but if we do they may have similar likenesses to how we know them from the films i think that's quite exciting that uh, this is sort of canon within the jackson verse within middle earth yeah potentially so yeah which is cool very excited about that indeed uh mm. so a couple of really really quick things did you guys talk about jamila jamil joining she hulk last week no, I don't think it was Jamila out Jamil that. Jamil has joined She-Hulk. Hulk. <laughs> she is. Yes, true. she's playing Titania, who is uh, super a strong. A song by Sia. No, yes. wait. <laughs> she is Titania. And she's from The Bad Place, right? Uh, she is from The Bad Place. So uh, T4, I believe is what you're referring to. Uh, no, only kidding, T4 was great. Um, I get it. I'm, I'm hip. I'm down with the kids. So Jamila Jamil is going to be the baddie in She-Hulk, uh, which is all kinds of cool. Uh, Titania is, I believe, was once involved in a relationship with the Absorbing Man. Wasn't it? Or was she fucking Molecule Man? I can't remember. This was during Secret Wars. It was either her or the other Fire One, Vol- 
Vol, Vol, who was her name? Volcano no, or something? Yeah, I think Volcana? Volcana? Yeah. Was she Maybe? fucking Molecule Man? She was, she was with Molecule right. Man. I remember Titania one of them was... was with mm. Crusher Creel, a.k.a. the Absorbia Man. And is he part Nerds. of the Knives Out 2 cast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. So excited about that. And the Marvels, which is going to be coming out in the year, next year, the year after that. Uh, Captain Marvel 2, as we used to know it, is now the Marvels. And the South Korean actor Park Seo Joon has joined the cast. Uh, but again, I know I know nothing about it whatsoever. Whenever whenever we do casting news like this, and we say we don't know who he's playing or what the role is or what the film's about. It reminds me of a panel in a brilliant book I read when I was a kid called How to Be a Superhero, which was a really funny piss take out of of superheroes and it had art by the, the the late great steve dillon in it the writers posited many funny absurd superheroes and one of them there was a three panel joke where uh there's a couple of bad guys on like the fourth floor of a building and they're planning a <laughs> they're planning a heist and then so you see them going okay we're going to take the bank down at this time and then panel two you see uh, a superhero bob into frame and then bob back out again and then it cuts the next panel which is him with the commissioner of the uh, of the of the town and he goes the jenkins gang are planning a heist commissioner but i don't know where or when and the commissioner goes you're a useless asshole pogo man just make me laugh so it reminds me a lot whenever we do that. Someone's in the movie, but we don't know what they're doing or, or when it's going to be shooting. You're a useless asshole, Chris Hewitt. Ah, there I go talking about myself in the third person again. Anything else before we wrap this up? Yeah, just a couple of, I mean, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot today about DC heroes with a salty taste in their mouths and uh, Aquaman. I beg your pardon? Um, oh, what? what? Excuse me? Helen O'Hara, I've got a fit of the fibers. Oh, You're allowed to do it, but I'm not. Anyway. Um, That's what Batman said. <laughs> Uh, James James Wan has revealed that the title of the Aquaman sequel will be Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Ooh. I've sent you a picture of Batman's cock, just so you know. Why would you do that? Where? In the WhatsApp. In the sky, is it like it's a bat signal? It's all in shadow. <laughs> no, oh, no, God, no, you can't actually see. Yeah, <laughs> oh, <right>. my God. <laughs> the bat oh, bell end is on full display. It, it kind of is, yeah. It's Dr. Manhattan's it's, uh, out. Yeah, it's, it has been shadowed out in, in subsequent printings. Oh, what? Even his dick's in the shadows. He's so on brand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So. Where is this, which comic book is this from? It was a bit, it was la- I think it was last year. Is this from World's Finest? My word. <laughs> You should probably check if you've got that WhatsApp setting where it automatically saves images to your camera roll because you may end up then scrolling through and finding that you have Batman's dick in your camera roll. Batman's Dark Knight. Uh, blimey stuff. Blimey stuff. There we go. Um, we began with Batman's Bell End. That's where we shall finish as well. <laughs> Time now for this week's third guest, and it is the great Jimmy Smith's He's an actor who has racked up an incredible CV over the years, a lot of it on the small screen, of course, and the likes of L.A. Law and NYPD Blue and, um, oh, the uh, there's, a, there's another, there's another, what's it Dexter? called? What, what do you say? Dex- Dexter, I yes, d- thanks, Ben. Yes. Dexter I also. I can't think of anything maybe, else he's been um, in, Chris. Oh, uh, was it uh, Sons of Anarchy? Sons of Anarchy, I think he was in that yeah, as well. He's in that too. Yeah, yeah. I think those are the only shows that he was really, really oh in. God. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Brooklyn Nine-Nine. 
Brooklyn Nine Nine. He of plays Amy's dad. He does. He really does. And uh, President Santos, you idiot. Oh, that's <laughs> right. The West Wing. He was in the West Wing as well. Uh, he's been in some movies over the years as well, including Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, uh, where he plays Bail no, Organa. He's not in that. He he's, bailed. Oh, wow, that's that's the level we're at now. Um, <laughs> uh, and he pops up this week in. John M. Chu's adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's joyous musical In La Heights. And Ben and I had a good old chat with Mr. Smiths over Zoom just a couple of weeks ago. No spoilers, but at one point he gets his lightsaber out. And for once on this podcast, that is not a euphemism. Here we go. Jimmy Smiths, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of In the Heights, the great Jimmy Smiths. How are you, sir? Hey, Chris, how are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, how how has your day been? Uh, this this digital remote junket yeah. experience. We're in we're in the Zoom digital world. Yeah, that, you know, we're all coming. We're all coming out of this, which is hopefully we're all coming out of this. But uh, and so, but we've learned a lot in terms of technology. And the I, the other day I did a Zoom play. You know, and it wasn't just like a reading. It was a whole thing with backgrounds and so. Wow. When you've got lemons, you got to make some lemonade. <laughs> Precisely. And I, I imagine as well that this, this experience, now that the film is finally about to come out, and you were filming it two years ago. So have you, you, know, have you had to jog your memory about the experience of filming in the Heights? Or has it all been... Had to jog my memory about yeah, the film? Or, or is it something that was indelible for you, that, that experience of making this movie? Hey, Chrissy, uh, this is this is going to be like implanted forever in a day. So, but uh, I, I do have to admit there was, of, of course, you know, we were in a pandemic and there was lockdown that was happening worldwide. So there was depression everywhere to go around. But yeah. the fact that we had done just prior to all of that, a little release party for the teaser, because the film was going to come out last summer. And I was very excited to to to, to see that. Um, yeah, but stuff happens for a reason, you know. Uh, I think about that in terms of my participation in the film and the people that are involved in the film, John's involvement with Lynn, and you know, we have had this time not only in our country but worldwide to kind of reflect not only about health concerns but many societal issues we've had we've had so we've had this time to kind of reflect on all these social issues and we're going to come out of this in a in a different kind of way i i i hope and in the trappings of the delivery system in of this film being a musical and and giving i i just hope that it it lends a little bit to the joy that we all you know need and and can get in a shared experience of seeing a movie. I mean, talking of shared experience, it must feel like you made this film in a completely different world because it is everybody together. You shot it on the streets of Washington Heights in New York. It was everybody together, lots of high energy dance stuff, things that you just couldn't do at the moment. Um, what what was your experience of being back in New York? I know you, you're from Brooklyn. Um, do you live in New York? Was it a, a homecoming for you? What was that whole experience? Well, the fact that we were in shooting this film in Washington Heights, I think, buoyed the film in so many different ways. One, because Lynn, you know, Lynn 
still lives there and uh, he grew up there and those are his streets that 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 we were that we were singing and opining about uh kiara who is from philadelphia who was one of the writers is she's from philadelphia but she lived in, in that neighborhood while while she was living in new york and 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 the neighborhood is very aware of the, of them and their success of course you know not even in the height think about the the global reach of hamilton but the fact that that we were they there was a knowledge that we were filming there and so it wasn't like we were going to uh to catering for for lunches we were actually going to the restaurants there and people it it, it really kind of the energy was very high mm-hmm. and uh you know you you think about singing and dancing hey singing and dancing in a musical but in that in that neighborhood summertime you you're hearing conga drums you're hearing people on a on a daily so uh it just yeah led led guys to the feeling of authenticity and what was the best lunch you had while shooting this movie then if you were eating in the restaurants in the neighborhood in neighborhood what was the best food that you had in washington oh, okay i can tell you that no with no doubt because uh leslie grace and i shot a one of our first scenes in this restaurant called la floridita which is a Latino Dominican owned restaurant that was off the hook, as we say. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, can you remember what you ate there? What was your order? I think I had a con pollo. That was my, that's my go-to, my, my go-to dish, <laughs> rice, chicken and rice. Nice. Reminds <laughs> me of mom. So this, this is, um, this is a musical that you have a, a, a strange connection with going back many, many years. Uh, I was, I was reading recently. So you saw this back in the day. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that uh, I remember that, that there's a place in New York City called the Drama Bookstore where, uh, you know, actors go to, to, to find scenes and, you know, plays, uh, Samuel French editions of plays. And it's kind of actor hangout. And, and a buddy of mine I went to college with, college with uh, told me that there were some kids that would occupying the basement space and doing a workshop of a plan that they were the real deal. And maybe two or three years later, this 19 year old kid, I was watching off Broadway with my wife, watching this play called in the Heights. And that was the, that was the play that my, that my buddy was talking about. And we looked at each other, this is the, these guys are the real, this is the new wave, the next wave. So it was just about going and saying hello to them. And, and just like, being as supportive as, as, as possible, I, I was able to. Lynn asked me to do the voiceover on um, on the Broadway commercial that when they, you know, when they had their Broadway iteration um, to do the, the the voiceover announcement. I said, "Oh yeah!" In exchange for some house seats, I'll gladly do it. But I <laughs> I was working I was working on on Broadway and another show, and our off days were different. So I would go occasionally to to watch cast changes and stuff. And then I saw Lynn a couple of, maybe it was two years afterwards. Uh, yeah, it was like two, two, three years afterwards that uh, at the drama bookshop. And he was told me, he told me that he had a break, you know, he took a, took a, a vacation break and he was reading this book on Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton, yeah. The guy on the $10 bill, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, he was like so effervescent about this. He's an immigrant and it's like America, the story and kind of floated away. And next thing I know, he was 
spitting rhymes at the White House for. So yeah, I've I've seen the different iterations of of the play, and um, films take a while to kind of gestate. And I was aware of the different um, attempts at having the film get made. But when I when I heard about John coming on board, which I think was like genius because of his visualization and preparedness as, as a director. And I read that particular script, just, you know, just called my agent and said, I'd, I'd love to like, just read that. I saw because of the changes that were made and the opening up of the script that Kiara and Lynn did, that there was a possibility it wasn't going to be heavy, you know, characters were deleted and the music was a little bit different. It wasn't going to be heavy lifting for me vocally but I would get to check off something on my bucket list. But I, want, I felt that I could contribute something in terms of the dramatic scenes um, yeah. that that character was in. Yeah, because you, you're playing Kevin Rosario, we should say for the listeners, who uh, owns the taxi firm on the block in Washington Heights. Um, how, how comfortable did you feel with the singing and dancing? Is that something, because obviously in, in the show, uh, Inutil, uh, Kevin gets his own number, which you don't get to do here. Was it kind of a relief thinking, oh God, I don't have to do this quite tricky number? Or was it like, it's kind of a shame I didn't get to do my own number? Well, I mean, yeah, that, that particular number is, which Carlos Gomez on Broadway, who's a friend, did just beautifully. I'll, I'm going to be totally honest with you. During the filming, music is very important to me whenever I do a, whatever character I do. So I have a kind of playlist for the character. And I would play that song because that song is the subtext for that character, you know, where he came from and the feelings that he had and why he had to leave a farm and come to the United States. And it's the, sto it's the immigrant story of coming, coming to a country or from one region to another in a country for the hopes of a betterment of your offspring, you know, to do good in the particular country and the feeling of community, all of those things. Yeah, I, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that fueled me during the filming experience. But again, I, 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 I'm joking around when I'm saying this thing about checking off the, the, the bucket list. Yeah. In terms of the artistic thing about doing a musical, I hadn't done something like that since uh, summer stock and, and high school productions. But I mean, I I don't sight read, but I think I can carry a carry a note or two if I. But Warner <laughs> Brothers would say, "Does he have to really have four different vocal coaches on two coasts for for eight <laughs> lines of music?" Yes, because I want to be on point. So that's what that that's what that was about. Obviously, you're joking about the bucket list, Jimmy. But what what else? hypothetically speaking, would be on the bucket list. Was was Star Wars on your bucket list, for example? Star Wars was definitely on the bucket list. Uh -huh. um, and and to get a call from, from Mr. Lucas at that time to say, we're going to start this conversation about, there's not going to be a, a, a lightsaber in this conversation, but <laughs> <laughs> I'd like for you to come and play with us. And it's, it's okay. I got a speeder and... Uh, Ray gun. No, it was, it, that was, that, that was uh, very honored to be part of that franchise. So is there anything else? What else is on the bucket list? The Jimmy Smith's bucket list? Of course. And I, and I hope that this film helps to propagate that, but we, we see that it's, it's all about 
having stories told. So if, um, if I can help and be a part of um, having projects that where you're involved in terms of the producerial thing or the writing aspect of it, more for me would probably be on the producing level uh, to keep, you know, to keep in that vein. I, that's definitely on the list. Uh, you mentioned there that back in the day when you uh, talked to Lynn and you first knew about In the Heights, you asked for house seats. What are the house seats like on on In the Heights? Were they good seats? Did you get like, you know, was it the, the best seats in the house or? As in London, there's some old theaters that are quite like, <laughs> as, I have rickety knees. So as long as I get a seat on an aisle, I'm okay. So I can <laughs> stretch my big boats out. <laughs> I have to say, I have noticed that your t-shirt is the original uh, Broadway In the Heights logo. Is that a vintage tee? Is that from that first off-Broadway performance? You were like, this is great. I'm buying the t-shirt. Oh, no, this is actually, this is actually from Lynn's, from Lynn's, uh, from Lynn's company. Lynn has a wonderful company where he has all of these things. And uh, I actually have a, I have a better one. I have Rosario's car and limousine service. Nice, nice. That's inside that for, baseball. I'll wear that next time when I see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be looking out for it. Jimmy, you got to hook us up with this stuff. This is this is this is cool. You know, we can hook you up. We can definitely <laughs> hook you up. <laughs> it's just two t-shirts. That's that's all it is. Uh, do you get to keep stuff throughout your career? This you know your your incredible career. Do you get to keep costumes or anything like that? Any keepsakes? I- I, I tr- yeah, I try, I try for a keepsake here and there. I have Kevin Rosario's handkerchief because I had a KR. I th- thought that he would have a monogram handkerchief. So, yeah, I got, <laughs> I got that. I have okay. a lightsaber there, up right up there. Hang on a second. You've, what, you, you, you nicked a wait, lightsaber. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, well. <laughs> the lightsaber has been activated. It's happening. He didn't give me a lightsaber in the film, but I got it through. I got it through the merch department. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. You're a pretty practiced swordsman, or Jimmy? That was some pretty good oh, skills. Yeah, right. Just a little bit, you know, but better than me. I would have dropped it. <laughs> Do you have that so that you're primed if you ever get that Star Wars call? Because obviously you came back for Rogue One a couple of years ago and they are they are back in that part of the timeline. The Obi-Wan series is coming. Bail Organa is very much around at that point. Are you just waiting for them to call? And when they do, you're like, I've got the lightsaber already. I've been training. You know, I'm good to yeah. go. The 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 franchise has become Disneyfied, so I mean there there's there's the possibilities are endless. I don't know. That's an interesting cryptic answer. Maybe or <laughs> no, am I reading or, or, to or am I reading too much into it? No, no, no. This is one of those things, isn't it? It's dangerous these days if you've been associated with a franchise like that and someone asks you a question about it and you say anything, it could be spun <laughs> anyway. Right. You know, so that could be either Jimmy Smith's denies involvement in future Star Wars projects or Jimmy Smith's <laughs> leaves the door open for, for involvement no, in no, future no, Star Wars. No, no, no. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to be on the real man. Absolutely. It is a big franchise. I want to just quickly talk about um, one of the most energetic sequences in In the Heights, the Carnival del Barrio sequence. I did, wrote the Empire feature for this film, so I've spoken to Lynn, spoken to Anthony, I've spoken to Kiara, everybody, and everybody said that that day was just exceptional. Shooting the Carnival del Barrio sequence should have been four days. You did it in a day. Um, what was your experience of that day? Because you're in that number. 
I mean, there, there are a lot of memorable. I, I watched them do the 96,000 sequence in not great weather uh, in that pool. And, and, and John was just like in the water with them. And that's the way the filming process went. But I think because of the, the carnival sequence was special because it, they, we had to do it in a day. And there were maybe 175 extra in this little, uh, you know, there are tenement buildings that surround each other. And so there's a little courtyard there. And Lynn, Lynn is in the movie in a, in a different role, uh, spoiler alert. And <laughs> John had placed him up on a fire escape, which is kind of like a metal balcony. And he, he was looking down at these people with these flags from all of these different countries and just joy and unity and all those, all that positivity. And I, I looked up and he was, he was in tears because, and I said to myself, this, this kid has been with this thing since he was 19. This was his, you know, high school, I mean, college uh, workshop, graduate project that he saw through, shepherded, went on to do something that changed the, the scope of theater and now is coming back and watching it being preserved on the silver screen. He was, it, it messed. And everybody just, well, after the, the wrap of that particular, it was like the climax of the number. Everybody looked up and he was in tears and everybody got in tears and they started chanting. His, it, was, it was special on so many levels. Oh my God. That's Amazing. why I won't forget it, like how we started out. Yeah. Oh, mate. It sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Well, Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to let you go uh, to go off and, and maybe play with your lightsaber again, or is that going to stay on the wall for the, for the time no, being? I've got to put it back. i got to put it back. That was just for you guys. <laughs> I feel honored to have, uh, to have seen that happen. I hope we get to, I hope we get to talk again. I'll, I'll bring you, I'll bring you t-shirts. Jimmy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. Take care, Chris. Ben, take care. God bless. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, so that was Jimmy Smith, and now we're going to barrel straight into the reviews section. A lot of movies out this week fighting for your attention in the multiplex, and we should start with Jimmy Smith's and In the Heights. Now, this isn't Hamilton, the movie musical. This is obviously an adaptation of an earlier Lin-Manuel Miranda, perhaps less well-known Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, but is it a lesser Lin-Manuel Miranda musical? Helen. Tell us all about it. Yes. So this is set in the Washington Heights area of New York. It's about essentially the the people there. Yes. Um, It's it's a much more down-to-earth, small-scale set of personal dramas than we saw in Hamilton there. It's all about, oh, no, we disagree on the Constitution. And this one's more like, oh, no, we need some money and we have to relocate our shop because the rents have gone up. You know, it's it's not dissimilar to Hamilton. We need some money because the rents have gone up, because King George III's a dick. Raising taxes on tea. I mean, yeah. sure. Yeah. So yeah. gentrification in this case is King George, I suppose. That motherfucker. That's, and also um, the, the College of Stanford is King George. Uh, anyway, uh, we focus on a bunch of characters led by Anthony Ramos as, as Navi. He's planning to move back to the Dominican Republic and open the beach bar that his father once owned. Um, and give up the bodega that he has been running ever since the family came to New York. But he's kind of distracted by Vanessa, um, a, a, new, a girl in the neighborhood who wants to be a fashion designer. She's played by Melissa Barrera. His buddy Benny, Corey Hawkins, is trying to kind of 
get back together with his childhood sweetheart Nina, played by Leslie Grace, who is Jimmy Smith's character's daughter. Um, there's a full chorus of, you know, abuelas and salon ladies and kids in need of guidance and old mates and graffiti artists and you name it. Yeah, it's a really realistic you know, relatable story about normal people and normal people problems. You know, do I go back to university even though it's hard and I feel alone and I feel, you know, cut off from my family and my people and everybody else? You know, how do I pay for my daughter to go to this university? Um, do I stay here in in New York or do I move back to a beach paradise um, and start over with an entirely new life there? These are all the kind of questions that these people have to figure out and, and answer. And they do so through the medium of song. Um, so again, like Hamilton, it blends kind of big Broadway with hip hop. Unlike Hamilton, there's much more salsa in here. They've, they've drawn from the musical and cultural and even food traditions of peoples of basically all of South and Central America. Um, one dance number, for example, you know, literally has people displaying their flags and displaying their own national mm -hmm. backgrounds and making it clear that, you know, while Latinx is a, is a convenient term, that, that actually includes a huge number of different uh, identities. I think the screenwriter, uh, Kira Alegria Hudes, um, who also wrote the book for the play, has done a really good job of kind of trimming it down, cutting it back. She has lost a couple of characters that I did love from the musical, but I think it still feels like itself. This is not a musical that feels mm. radically different. Even though some of the storylines, some some things have radically changed, it 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 keeps itself. It keeps its sense of sense of center and spirit. I think really well. And I think John M. Chu has done a really magnificent job. I have to say mm. of finding ways to stage these numbers that feel cinematic, that takes it off the stage, that that kind of translates it into something new and and different and really visually impressive. I mean, from you know the very simple things like you know relocating one big number to the side of a pool and get and you know using the water and using the kind of pool floats and things like that. Um, but also slightly more kind of ambitious CG heavy things like having bolts of fabric appear over buildings when Vanessa's singing about her hopes and dreams. Mm. So yeah, it's really fun and really uplifting and really summery, really, really summery actually. If it's if it's raining where you are, this is a very good one to see um that way. I mean <laughs> right I do now in think the UK it, it's raining where everyone is. So. It's raining pretty yeah. much all over. Um I, I do think, you know, that it's it's does feel a little bit long. It does feel a little bit saggy in the middle. It doesn't have the kind of big breakout pop hit number that a lot of the big mm -hmm. movie musicals have. And I think that's why box office um, people maybe overestimated how big it was going to be. But I think it's going to have great legs. I think it's going to be around for a long time. I think people are going to find it as it goes and and just, just embrace it. Because in a time when we've been so separated and so isolated, this is about the opposite of that, essentially. And that's, mm -hmm. that's something worth celebrating. Can't have dance numbers without great legs, right? Am exactly. I right? Am I right? But it's interesting because uh, there were lots of people writing the this movie's box office obituary after it came out at the weekend in the States. It's also on HBO Max. Mm -hmm. I think there was some information about how many people downloaded it, but it only opened to $11 million at the US box office, which is not entirely back to normal, but it's getting there. It is getting there. So $11 million was seen as a disappointment. One of the factors that was perhaps floated for that, and it's a, you know, it's a musical, it's got a great chance of having long legs the way that the greatest showman did. Yeah. Is that mm. 
it's not Hamilton. So maybe people aren't as familiar with the songs that the film, you know, that In the Heights doesn't have that standout song. It doesn't have that standout name recognition factor that a Hamilton has. And so it, it's more, it's more in the same boat as The Greatest Showman was, which is, it's a word of mouth thing. It's, you know, it is about once people go and see it and are won over by it and are beguiled by it and are won over by the music and affected by the music, then it's going to catch on and roll and roll and roll. But contained within this long ramble is a question. You know, we're all big Lin-Manuel Miranda fans here. I've seen Hamilton multiple times, as you as you guys know. But, but is this as good as Hamilton in terms of the music? Does it grab you in the same way that Hamilton does, for example? No. I up to I see. I would say yes. Like oh my God. this is the thing. Like I, <laughs> the music in this, I I sort of see what you're saying. Where it's like there's there's not this one number, but I think you look at that track list and the amount of big, really grabby, really upbeat, really kind of spirited numbers. There are so so many of them. There is an absolute wealth. I remember getting into this um, a few years back after I'd kind of listened to the Hamilton soundtrack a bunch of times. And it does have a slightly different flavor, of, as Helen said. It has a lot of kind of Latin influences in the music, which sort of Hamilton doesn't really have. But for me, so much of it, it was like, oh my God, it was like discovering a third disc of Hamilton and being like, holy shit, like every thing that made his music so great in that is also present in this in a really interesting and different way. I think you could pull out a handful of massive numbers in this. Obviously, 96,000, mm-hmm. the opening uh, number called In the Heights. Mm. Alabanza always gets stuck in Alabanza, Paciencia y Faith mm. is like one of the biggest kind of and most spectacular, spectacularly rendered songs in this for me. Uh, when Your Home is a massive one. Like there's mm. so, so many like big mm. grabby numbers in this. They are not well known. They haven't broken out. But at the same time, the people who kind of were on it with Hamilton were the people who had gone out of their way to listen to the soundtrack in advance. And I think Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued Mm -hmm. to see, I really hope that this sort of picks up a bit of steam and has that word of mouth because I think it has so, so many great songs in it. And I think they're put together is really, really great, impressive musical numbers in a filmic sense as well. Like each of those numbers feels incredibly distinct and really vibrant. Um, oh my God, Carnival del Barrio. Like, oh my God, there's so, so many good ones. I Come mean, look, on. I, they're, they're, they're all good tunes, but I, I, I mean, I don't think they're anywhere near as catchy as a great showman. There's none of no, that kind I of agree. poppiness. And I, I love the music in this. I really do. But I don't think they are going to catch on in the same way that did. I think that's the biggest danger to its legs going forward. I think people will love the characters and will fall in love with the world, but I, I don't know about Cause if the Because I can't remember. So I watched this film. I could not remember. I couldn't tell you. If you, if you pin me down now and tortured me, I couldn't tell you, A, the name of a single song, apart from there's probably one called In the Heights, uh, or B, how any of them go. Like, I couldn't hum one at all. I really couldn't. And I think for me... Look, I didn't love this film. That comes no shock to any of you. But to, pre- to, yeah, to present the joyless point of view, please welcome <laughs> Look, James Look, I Dyer. came to Hamilton very late in the day, but I was blown away by it. Like, I loved Hamilton because the song stood out. There was stuff that instantly just lodged themselves in your brain. Like, the story was sort of epic, lots of stuff going on. And this feels very small by comparison in terms of like the stakes are quite low the story is quite minimalist you know you've on the one hand you've got the war of independence on the other hand you've got a guy who may or may not open up a bar on the beach do you know what i mean like it's it's not exactly i'm that invested in what's going to happen and i found the music in addition to that it's look the choreography is fucking spectacular what they actually did visually it's it's brilliant but but the songs I didn't think were particularly stand out. There was nothing that made me think, oh wow, that's that's a great piece. I was like, it's fine, like it's all fine. It's very very fine. 
that said, that said, it is joyous. Perhaps that's why I didn't like it as much. You know, you can't like it's a bullion. Like it's so much, you know, happiness and emotion on screen. But it's two and a half hours long of mainly people, you know, singing a twenty-minute song about something that could be said in two lines of dialogue. And it was just like, seriously, guys, please. Have you met musicals? I mean, you like Les Mis. That's about. I do, I do. But it's Jean Valjean or get the fuck out. Quite frankly, like this, you know, that's. You know, the student rebellion, again, is more exciting than whether or not, you know, the Peragua bloke is going to sell enough snow cones to put the Mr. Whippy guy out of business. That is not a major plot point, and you know it. Like, just because people don't throw their furniture out on the street to make a barricade against the French authorities doesn't mean a musical doesn't have depth, all right? But to your point, Helen, The Greatest Showman is... is has got bangers top to bottom on it. And like I, I had no no horse in that race at all going into The Greatest Showman. In fact, I was predisposed to not like it because Terry kept banging on about it. But when I was like, oh God, these are really good songs. I really enjoyed The Greatest Showman. I thought it was great. Whereas with this, I was just very, I felt a bit sort of worn down by A, the runtime and B, the fact that I just found the songs, generic's a bit harsh, but I will say so just not sufficiently distinct or standout, I thought. Sorry, Ben. Sorry, sorry. Know, it's so all wrong over to me. Joy. No, it's a, like everybody has a very valid and and unique experience of this film, but that's so completely the opposite of what I feel. So everybody's mileage may may vary on this I one. I respect Ben's like musical nous. <laughs> like you know a lot more about music than I do. You're really into your music, so I generally sort of like follow your lead for musical, you know, stuff. What's your favorite note in this? Uh, uh, F is a pretty good one. Wow, I like A wow. sharp, but yeah, mainly when it's masquerading as B flat. <laughs> Anyway, yes, we've talked about this for almost as long as a Jared Butler movie, and I'm not sure that this movie deserves to be talked about for as long as a Jared Butler movie, mainly because <laughs> In the Heights is not a Gerard Butler movie. Uh, so therefore, we've taken a star off it, otherwise it would get five stars. It has been knocked down a star for having no Jerry Butler. Four stars then for In the Heights. In the heights, in the heights, let's go down to the heights. That's not, just to be clear, as you're a lawyer, that's not how it went. Also, you'd go up to the heights, because it's upper Manhattan. No, you'd go down on the heights. Do you go down on the heights or come down on the heights? Come down on the heights, Chris, you come down on the heights. All right, okay. Anyway, next up we have in the earth, in the earth, let's go down in the earth. Everything's about in this week, so we have in the heights, and then Ben Wheatley has gone, all right, US juggernaut, all right, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I am going to respond with In the Earth, which is a movie that Ben Wheatley made, wrote, directed, shot, edited, did the whole kit and caboodle in lockdown. It is one of those movies I was worried about whenever the pandemic began, that we would get lots of movies about the pandemic. But Ben Wheatley has put his own particular Ben Wheatley spin on this and come up with a really deeply weird folk horror. Ben. Hello, yes. Um, So this is uh, Ben Wheatley very much back in a field in England and kill list mode, I'd say especially a field in England, really. And this one stars Joel Fry as a sort of scientist guy called Martin, uh, who is heading (laughs) into... I think think the term you're looking for is scientist. (laughs) Well, that's right. This is part of my setup is that... These characters, they have an excuse to basically get these people into the woods. Um, That excuse is that Martin is a scientist who has to go into the woods for reasons to try and find out, get some soil samples, super fertile soil in this kind of 
very inaccessible part of a forest and he's heading in there with Alma played by Elora Torchia uh, she is his guide uh, before they go in they I mean there are very few characters in this because it was made in a very low-key way with just a couple of people before they head into the woods, they hear some of the legends about Parnag Feg, who is the sort of supposed spirit of the forest. They go in, things go very, very bad, uh, and they meet some uh, mysterious, strange, strange characters out in the wilderness, uh, and the chances of them getting out look very, very slim. This is... If you listen to last week's podcast, we were talking about the the ouchie scale of of nobody being a sort of four out of five ouchies of like oof ooh blimey that looks like it really fucking hurt, uh, and this mm-hmm. for me was a full five out of five ouchies. Uh, if you have <laughs> survived Kill List and the hammer blows that that film deals literally and metaphorically, you know what you're sort of heading into here. Um, mm-hmm. It was really nice to see Ben Wheatley sort of back in this territory. Like I said, it is very a field in England. If you lent into the psychedelic uh, sort of woozy weirdness of that, and you're not expecting concrete answers or concrete anything um i think you'll find a lot in this to enjoy it's uh well i say enjoy also endure it is a really nasty film uh but has that really great quality that i love in ben wheatley's stuff where it is kind of nasty and it's grim but there is quite a lot of dark humor in it as well one of the figures that they meet in the woods i I feel okay saying this because it's in the trailer is a guy played by reese shearsmith and he is a really unpredictable character uh, and you don't quite know how any interaction with him is going to go. And obviously he has, if you've seen Inside Number 9, you know how well those guys can uh, tread the line of something really mm. fucked up, but also something fucked up but kind of funny at the same time. Uh, and he brings a lot of that energy to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say for me, it did, wasn't quite as good as A Field in England or Kill List for me. Um, ben Whitley wrote this one himself. Obviously he works a lot with Amy Jump, his his wife and regular collaborator. Often she writes his films. This one he wrote himself and I think you can kind of feel there's a good energy to the fact that it feels like it was made on the fly. He's spoken about the fact that he started writing this like two weeks into the pandemic and it was a very visceral kind of reaction um, to everything that he was feeling and, uh, and the way he felt other people were responding to the pandemic. I think for me, the writing in this one sometimes fell a little bit short and the characters felt occasionally quite thin. On the one hand, it has this really expansive feeling and it's dealing with lots of very deep metaphysical, metaphorical stuff. And at the same time, for me, the characters and some of the dialogue fell a little bit short. But I think that is all part and parcel of the feeling that it was made on the fly and just kind of feeling things in the moment and channeling it into a film that is very much a pandemic film, but also I think thrives outside of that context as well. It will shock you, not shock you to know that I didn't particularly enjoy this either. Um, partly because I don't like body <laughs> horror films. I found them deeply upsetting. And this is very upsetting in that aspect. I think more for me, it was just, it's quite indistinct and it's a little bit nebulous in its mythology. And you never really get the sense that the primary characters in this are doing a great deal to unravel. Because you want to know more about it. Like the Parnag Feg, there's, there's some interesting, you know, riffs on the internet of trees, which turns up in the OA and, you know, sort of mitochondrial sort of brain structures. Lots of interesting stuff in there that never really gets fully explored. I enjoyed Joel Fry, uh, Elora Torsha was very, very good, and Hayley Squires. I thought all the performances were good. They tried to sell it. But I just didn't really buy into it that much i just i ultimately i got quite bored in this as well towards the end and i felt a bit you know sort of put down by it that said 
I do think the black comedy is absolutely excellent. There's a particular foot involved bit that properly is 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 it makes you squirm, it makes you wince, but it also makes you laugh out loud. And and I think there's a couple of brilliant lines delivered by Joel Fry, which are com- absolutely deadpan and genuinely hilarious. So it's certainly fun to be had, but it is quite nasty all the way through. And I think I really did struggle with that. Mm. I did note one thing though, watching this. And that's that, well, not least of all, the fact that Ben Wheatley can really do a lot with a little. Like, he's very good at this kind of stripped back filmmaking. Even though it's not my kind of film, I really do appreciate the, you know, the artistry and the craft that went into this. Because it's a very well-made piece of filmmaking. But especially the the sound mixing in this is fucking brilliant. Just the use of the sound. Just there's a point where they're going through it where the creaking of trees moves around all the speakers. It does it for about 20 minutes. And it gives you a real sense of being in that place in the woods. And it's properly creepy. And this is before they move into more experimental sound effects where they're stuffed with strobes and weird sounds and psychedelica. Mm-hmm. And again, the use of the mix there is absolutely excellent. I think really, really immersive. And I think for that reason alone, if you don't have like a surround sound slash Dolby Atmos, system in your home is really worth seeing on the big screen so i think that immersive soundscape really adds to this uh equally the introduction of you know access to people's body parts is also something worth seeing on a big screen i i saw this in the cinema and uh yeah kind of hearing people's audible grossed out reactions to things was an absolute joy mm. and uh yeah the sort of he described the film as being purposefully abrasive and that very much comes yeah. through the sound mix right from the very opening seconds the opening image of rocks cracking in a very very loud uncomfortable way it was very very effective uh so yeah we gave this one four stars Hmm. yes four stars indeed for ben wheatley's in the earth next up we have in the monster hunter let's continue the trend paul ws anderson miliovovich together again have they recaptured the magic of the resident evil franchise jimbo uh, he has returned to the video game world for this. This is obviously an adaptation of the famous Capcom franchise of games, which are all really bold. They're full of dozens and dozens of different colours. They're vibrant, hugely multi-hued things, which is strange because none of that seems to have made its way into this film. So this essentially starts Miliovovich as uh, Captain Artemis uh, with her little squad of officers. She's in the <laughs> desert. She's a ranger. Uh, and she gets sucked into a parallel world where there are monsters. Uh, and most of this film is her and Tony Jaa, who is a native of that world and a monster hunter, kind of forming an uneasy alliance against these kind of big old beasties. Uh, they don't speak the same language, so it is all very much about communication problems and them gesticulating wildly at each other. And I think that, if we're going to pick up one thing about this film that really works, it's that. I think she and he do an awful lot with that body language sort of communications problems thing and the bond they develop is quite believable unfortunately i couldn't find much else about this film to enjoy and i am absolutely this film's target audience so i have played games i have enjoyed the games it's dedicated to you at the beginning (laughs) it's for james dyer it really is dedicated to me and yet the problem is it's just quite dull it is you know again it's called monster hunter the lack of an abundance of monsters in this i would say is problematic there is a very small range of monsters in this yes the rathalos does make an appearance but until that point you are basically stuck with a couple of them And it's quite a slow burn that feels slightly reminiscent of pitch black in places. And it's just very flat. Like it's, it's not that long a film, but it feels so much longer than it is because you're just like, Oh my God, it's been 40 minutes and there has been almost nothing happening. There's a big action sequence 
when they first get into the world. But again, it feels quite flat. It's not particularly exciting. And it almost feels like a repetition of the prologue action sequence, which is a bunch of sand pirates led by Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman with magnificent manga-style mutton-chop sideburns and huge anime hair. It looks absolutely ridiculous in the best possible way. And then you go into this sort of slightly dour, slightly slow-paced film where Miljevovich and Tony Jaa just try and kill this beast. And frankly, I think the problem with this more than anything else is I don't think it works as a, a, a kind of supernaturally action-type thriller thing. I don't think it works as a game adaptation because while they do have things like cats making stews and stuff, which is an important part of the game, none of the fun of the game makes it into the film. None of the colour and vibrancy of the game makes it into the film. So you kind of feel like if you're a Monster Hunter fan, you're going to feel a bit shortchanged. And then if you're not a Monster Hunter fan, you're just going to be like, I don't understand why I'm watching this. Now, we gave this three stars. I can't really tell you why that happened, but it did. I quite like it. Oh, my God. How? I mean, not, <laughs> like, not as, you know, I, I actually agree that it sort of feels almost like its own prequel. Like, it feels like it's setting up Monster Hunter and some Monster Hunter will, hunting will happen, you know, a couple of films down the line. But I quite liked that they focused on these two characters with no shared language, basically having to figure things out together. Yeah. I quite liked their interactions. And I thought that gave it a little bit of an ex a different energy from a lot of the other stuff that we've already seen. It's basically a survival hunter, a survival film rather than a monster hunting film. So I realise mm. it may not entirely be delivering on the title, but I thought, you know, it didn't do too bad. And I liked that they had actually gone to a desert and shot in a desert and you had that feeling of sort of physicality of a desert. My biggest, my biggest criticism was essentially the Ron Perlman thing. If you have a galleon that sails the desert sands, <laughs> captained by Ron Perlman, that shit needs to be on the screen every single fucking scene, right? That needs to be absolutely front and centre. So that's that's my biggest criticism. But honestly, I, I did like it. I, I enjoyed the it. The Ron Perlman stuff you mentioned of feels like a different film to the rest of it. Yeah. It feels like they, someone's taken like the last reel of Ice Pirates and then tacked it onto the end of this otherwise bland adaptation. I didn't I didn't think it was bland, but I do think it's, I do agree it's, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, it's a little bit more sombre perhaps because she does lose, you know, her world essentially getting to this place. So, you know, there's, there's real consequences to all of that, but I, I, Look, I, I didn't hate it. I, I had quite a good time. And, and I think it's better than, for example, just given that we're talking about Miljovic and Paul W.S. Anderson, I think it's better than most of the Resident Evil films. <gasps> it may be less action-packed, but it's a better made film. And that's a high bar. That's a high bar to clear. Is it? Is it though? <laughs> Real high bar. Three stars in. Three stars in for Monster Hunter. James hasn't liked anything this week. Um, I haven't. I did not have the best time this week. No. No. If there'd been more singing in Monster Hunter, or indeed more monsters in In the Heights, I think I'd have been very happy. But, you know, you take You're a monster. He is. <laughs> and I will hunt you for what you said about In the Heights. Speaking of hunting monsters... You've made my mind up for me there, Helen. Let's talk about Luca. Benjamin, tell us about Luca, the latest slice of Disney Pixar magic, or the latest slice of Disney Pixar tragic wordplay. <gasps> I, I don't think Pixar does much tragic other than in the sense that you will weep your entire body weight in tears. This is the feature debut of Enrico Casarosa, uh, and it's a lovely little pay on to uh, Italian summers and childhood. It's a coming of age film. Uh, you have two sort of central characters, basically uh, Luca, played by Jacob Tremblay, and Alberto, voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer. Now, both of these kids are actually sea monsters under the sea. They have little scaly 
tails and all sorts. But when they're on dry land and are dry themselves, uh, they have a human appearance. Uh, Luca has grown up being told by his family that he can never go above land and that he can never sort of uh, interact with humans. But he is drawn out of the water by Alberto and these two hatch a plan. Uh, they become friends and they decide to enter a triathlon race in the local town, which in- involves riding a bike, swimming and eating a lot of linguine. Uh, to try and win some prize money, buy a Vespa, and live their best lives. And as you can tell, it is very low-stakes, low-key Pixar, and I kind of loved that about this. I think you go into a lot of Pixar films expecting to cry your body weight in tears, and this was very much a sunny, summery, gentle, but I think with enough sort of substance to it, uh, treats for me. I think it has a bit of a Ghibli vibe, especially I think at Ghibli do a lot of low-key coming of age stories again not low-key low-key coming of age stories um especially about yeah kind of children finding their way in the world and encountering sort of supernaturalness and for me i understand uh, we went three stars on this and i do understand that when they get to the town and some of the stuff involving the race there is a character they kind of come up against a bully uh called Ercoli, I think. I'm sorry, my Italian pronunciation is not up to scratch. Um, That character and everything that revolves around him is a bit generic and just didn't really do much for me. But the stuff of these two sea monster kids together, especially there are some gorgeous, gorgeous dream sequences in this that just made every hair on my body stand on end. Um, If you like the dream sequences in something like The Wind Rises and how freeing and imaginative those feel, like this that sort of stuff in this is beautiful. Um, not all of it completely works, but it still made me feel like I was going to do a little kind of uh, happy cry at the end. I think it's got a really lovely message about otherness um, that just feels like part of the overall plot and feeling. And it is like within the heights, it's like a little slice of summer in a movie that is going to be on your Disney Plus that is less than 90 minutes pre, kind of without credits. And I had a really lovely time with it. Yeah, this is this is very charming, but I I do feel like it's very much lesser Pixar, and you know a lot of like creature design feels like lesser animation studios a lot of the time in this. Um, even human design, you know the the gag with the uh, enormous man with eyebrows so big they swallow his eyes was done in Cloud with a Chance of Meatballs. You know uh, the gag with uh, a sea creature transforming into legs on dry land was done back in Splash. You know there's a lot of the kind of the bits of storytelling here that are taken from other things and and that's kind of what I don't want to see in a Pixar movie I want to see originality I want to see flair and especially when they're giving themselves the whole of essentially Italian neorealism to play with and to reference and to bounce off you kind of want to see them do that and not lift these slightly more tired tropes from you know other american films so i i really wanted a bit more than we got i I agree with ben that a lot of what's here is really charming um that you know the voice work is good the kids are are cute but that the story didn't all hang together if that's the if that's the message about accepting otherness in the end that doesn't run through it all it's not in its blood in the way that you want it to be in a pixar movie and i i just it felt cute. It felt nice. It did feel summery. But, you know, e- even him wanting to go above the sea and his parents being against it and, you know, the threat of the deep, that's all in The Little Mermaid like 30 years ago, guys. You know, 
I just felt like there was there was more they could have done with this. And while I'm very much up for Pixar exploring new cultures and ex- just going around the world and t- you know setting their stories in different places, I, I'm I'm not sure this is it. So I would I would go with Nick's three stars on this, which is still a recommendation. Why didn't they call it just In the Sea this week and just go with the general <laughs> vibe? Just stick with the program. Maybe they didn't know exactly when it was going to come out when they made it. You should always be able to roll with the punches. That's what Indeed. I say. Three stars in for Luca, which is uh, on Disney+. Plus. Feels like they've missed a trick there. But the last movie to talk about this week is also set in Italy. And that's as good a link as you're going to get. It is the <laughs> sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard, the Ryan Reynolds, Samuel L. Jackson action comedy that came out a couple of years ago. I didn't have the greatest of times with that movie. And so I was naturally overjoyed to see that they have made a sequel called Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, because this gives a bigger role to Salma Hayek, who was the firebrand wife of Sam Jackson's world's greatest assassin in that film, who was forced to team up reluctantly with the world's greatest bodyguard, played by Ryan Reynolds. And the gang is all back for one big gold pay, one great big story that clearly is worth telling. Hell's bells. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of uh, acquired taste. So uh, Ryan Reynolds, Michael, is still obsessed with everything that happened last time and how his career has been ruined, how he's lost his his bodyguard, officially licensed bodyguard status. This is kind of a world almost like John Wick, where that's a really big deal um, and, and people care. You know, it's 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 a thing. He goes on holiday at the orders of his therapist, but only, wouldn't you know it, um, Salma Hayek crashes and uh, crashes in and they have to go and rescue her husband. Um, and it they get drawn into via the medium of Frank Grillo being around for some reason. Um, you know, great, but like the, the film doesn't use him properly. Uh, they get drawn into foiling the plot of a crazed billionaire called Aristotle Papadopoulos, who's <laughs> played by Antonio Banderas with, and I cannot stress this enough, no attempt at a Greek accent whatsoever. <laughs> Most of this takes place around Italy. Any bit of Florence that Ryan Reynolds left standing after Six Underground gets indignities thrust upon it this time. Um, there's a bit with uh, <laughs> there's a bit with Morgan Freeman in it that I won't uh, spoil. There's a lot of swearing and a lot of Salma Hayek shouting loudly about her undercarriage in a way that I'm sure Batman would appreciate. But really, like you know, it, it's just a bit relentless at times. So it's extremely silly. I did have fun, partly because I watched it with my mum, who laughed uproariously throughout, and I can't quite understand why it worked for her, but it did. So that always amuses me, and uh, therefore I, I didn't hate it. But it is not by any stretch a technically good film. I think it's worth <laughs> saying. <laughs> Glowing recommendation then for Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Even the fact they've left off the the, the definite the, the, article from that. That annoys that, me. Why isn't that there? Oh, no. No, thank you. <sighs> two stars. Two stars then for Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, some breaking news whilst Ooh. we were talking about the reviews that the uh, very exciting cast of John Wick Chapter 4 has just become even more exciting. So I think, I don't know if you discussed this on the show last week, but Donnie Yen joined the cast last mm. week of... John Wick Chapter 4, which is about to start shooting with Chad Stahelski directing a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about, you know, would he be 
doing this or would he be doing Highlander as his next movie? And then literally, lo and behold, it was announced that they're about to start shooting on Chapter 4, which is great. And Chad Stahelski is going to direct it. And Hiroyuki Sanada has just signed on to join the cast as well, alongside Donnie Yen, the legendary Donnie Yen, Rina Sawayama and Shamir Anderson. And it's going to start shooting in France, Germany and Japan. John Wick is going to Japan. Can not wait. Anyway, last week we ended the show with a an excerpt from one of our spoiler specials, uh, one of our spoiler special interviews. We had a, a brief excerpt from our Quiet Place Part 2 spoiler special with that film's writer and director John Krasinski. The entire episode is up now behind the paywall for spoiler special subscribers. Um, come on in, the water is lovely. If you wish to subscribe, go to go to empireonline.com forward slash spoiler specials for more information or check my pinned tweet for details of how to do so. So I'm going to do it again this week. So Godzilla versus Kong came out a couple of months ago in cinemas. Uh, I did an interview, long interview with the film's director, Adam Wingard. But because the film was only available here in this country on PVOD, because cinemas were closed, obviously, we decided to hold the spoiler special until this week when the movie is out on DVD, Blu-ray and 4K before bringing you the spoiler special. So, our big old spoiler special featuring the full Adam Wingard interview, plus four giggling idiots sitting around and talking about the movie, that's also available through the spoiler special subscription channel. As will, I know this is a big plug, but bear with me, as will spoiler specials for four of the five movies we talked about on this week's show, In the Heights with director John M. Chu, In the Earth with writer-director Ben Wheatley, Monster Hunter with Paul W.S. Anderson, and Luca with director Enrico Casarosa and producer Andrea Warren. They're all going to be available over the next few weeks as well, as well as our weekly Loki deep dives. So, as I say, the water is lovely, and if you want to hear a little bit of the Adam Wingard interview, well, here is a 10-minute excerpt, which might just wet your whistle. Oh, and once again, I must stress that this is an excerpt from the spoiler special interview, so it contains... Spoilers, right from the off. Cannot signpost that enough. There are spoilers in this spoiler special interview. So if you haven't seen Godzilla vs. Kong, skip the next 9 to 10 minutes or so. For the rest of you, enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this Godzilla vs. Kong spoiler special by the titan himself, the film's director, Adam Wingard. How are you, sir? Super, super. Excellent. Are you, uh, you tired? You, uh, how are you feeling now you're at the end of this this marathon? Ah, you know, like the the marathon's been over for a little while. I mean, you know, like we finished the movie uh, at the end of last year and, uh, you know, COVID hit and, um, you know, uh, delayed the film. So I actually feel totally energized, you know, like um, earlier this year, we we were able to start like, you know, doing all of our playbacks. So I got to spend a couple of days in the IMAX theater by myself watching the movie. So oh. all those things were so fun for me. And it's just, it's, it's so great to kind of be back in it. And, you know, this, the interviews really started this week uh, okay. again. And uh, so I'm having a blast, honestly. Do you remember the film? Uh, has it been a while since you saw it? Do you need, <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, you know, like, honestly, I've seen it more now, uh, recently than I have, uh, you know, in any other part of it, of the phase, because, you know, all the yeah. QCs of it, you know, like, I mean, I literally, 
I think I watched the movie like 10 times in like four days recently, you know, for watching the different versions. So, uh, but I'm still not sick of it. So that says something, I think, you know, that's good. That is good. Uh, And I I know the circumstances have prevented it, obviously, but just the very fact that you mentioned seeing this on an IMAX screen just made me a little bit jealous, I have to say, because I'd love to see this on on the biggest screen possible with the best sound system possible with an audience. Well, that, I mean, there, there, there's some shots in this film that are just like so designed for the IMAX. There's like one moment where every time it would come up on screen, I would just be laughing my ass off in the theater by myself because there's a shot where Godzilla, he kind of starts back and it's like a POV shot and he just comes right at the camera and it just keeps coming and keeps coming. <laughs> and it, it, when you're in an IMAX, it's literally two scales. And especially when you're watching IMAX 3D, that shot is hilariously insane because it really is like Godzilla's just right in your face and <laughs> it, it just feels really he's really in the room with you it's super cool amazing well listen we can we can get into some of this stuff now because this is a spoiler special so what I want to do is I'd like to start with the question that's on everybody's lips and Adam I have to say there's a point where Kong kind of has a dislocated shoulder and he crunches it back into place and I immediately thought of Lethal Weapon 2 and then I saw at the end there's actually you know I think Lethal Weapon 2 is mentioned in the credits so that's very they're very uh, perceptive of you you're right in the end credits it mentions uh, a Lethal Weapon mug I believe that we had to use rights for because uh, originally uh, there was um, like much more of a, a thing about uh, Alexander Skarsgård's character being obsessed with Lethal Weapon. There was actually direct <laughs> Lethal Weapon references in the movie, if you can imagine that. Actually, he, he even wore a Japanese Lethal Weapon t-shirt in one of the scenes that we ended up cutting from the film. So all the Lethal Weapon references ended up getting cut, um, but I, I, I still had to do the the Kong you know, relocating his shoulder moment because it's just so badass. It's like one of the coolest moments uh, for Kong in the <laughs> movie you know kong gets to be all these 80s and 90s action stars obviously he's got a little bit of john mcclain you know during the ship battle and you know so we're we're always playing with him as sort of like this sort of you know down in his luck like shane black action hero kind of thing (laughs) that's amazing so at any point did you have kong signing i'm too old for this shit or (laughs) yippee-ki-yay motherfucker I'm not going to lie. Like that line was in a version of the script and I, I think it was Skarsgård who said it. Uh, but uh, yeah, again, just all that kind of stuff. It was just like too on the nose. And, and so it just kind of went by the wayside, you know, <laughs> I mean, when you're doing a movie like this, you know, like, a, you know, you, you always hear about these big Hollywood films and you know, that they, they start without scripts and you hear about all the deleted scenes and you wonder like how that happens. And, you know, it's a fascinating experience to have gone through this because, you know, there, there always is, I think like about three movies that you've made. You don't just make one movie, you make like yeah. three of them and then you have to figure out what the right movie is. Um, uh, so, you know, like if we'd wanted to, you know, we could have, you know, Zack Snyder this thing and put out a four-hour version, but the best version is the version that you're seeing, you know, and, uh, and it's the only version. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of stuff you shoot, you know, there's 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 a lot of waste sometimes, but, uh, but it's all worth it because, you know, you have to be able to focus and, you yeah. know, and sometimes you don't know how to do that exactly until you, until you, until you got it all in the can. I like the way you just headed people off the pass there right away by saying this is the only version because I, I think you, you were just like, oh God, people are going to be going, release the wind guard cut, release the wind guard no, cut. It, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because I, I had a lot of the, the, the especially the, the monster uh, fans, the Godzilla fans, 
mm. you know, hitting me up like, this is, you know, the shortest MonsterVerse movie yet. Like, you know, what's going on? You know, like, you know, are we going to get a director's cut and all this and that? It's just like, look, I mean, you know, uh, in under two hours, we fit a hell of a lot in this movie. I mean, a lot happens in two hours. And it's, it's, it, there's, there's nothing that, uh, that we cut that I would want to put back in, you know what I mean? There's maybe like a shot or two where you're like, oh, that's cool, but you can't put it in because it doesn't make sense in the context of the film. Mm. You know, I'm pretty sure we shot some shots of people riding on motorcycles. That was cool. But, you know, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, this is the movie. I mean, and, and, and time it's like, okay, like, do you really want a three hour version of this movie? Because, you know, it's not like you're going to get an extra hour of monsters. You're going to get an extra hour of people talking about monsters, you know, and that's not what people want. They want more monsters, you know? So, you, you know, what we're giving you is the most dense monster, you know, centric yeah. film that we can. <laughs> so it's not like, for example, you've cut out a third fight between Kong and Godzilla. No, 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 no. I mean, like, I'm sure like in the, uh, you know, the, the pre-production phase we had, uh, there was actually originally one more fight in the film with them, but we actually were never able to figure out how to make it that interesting. So we ended up cutting it because it was just like, th this is just kind of pointless. Because originally um, when Godzilla you know, fires his beam into hollow earth. Mm. Originally he actually went into hollow earth and he and Kong fought in sort of the throne room. And, uh, and then they both kind of crawl back up and, you know, fight it, finish the fight in Hong Kong. And, uh, and that was kind of Terry Rossio's original idea. He's like, there's gotta be three fights. And, uh, ultimately we, we storyboarded the hell out of that fight. And, uh, you know, we just couldn't find, you know, like a way to make it that interesting because, you know, these fights are very specific. I mean, like the ship battle is very dictated by the limitations that the, and, and the advantages that the monsters have, you know, like Kong can't really be in the water, you know, and, um, and so, you know, that kind of dictates the entire fight scene and it gives us a really cool focus and it's something you've never seen before. And then the big neon fight, is really about the one-on-one -on -one battle. This is like the moment where it's just like, okay, let's see who's the best, you know, and they're going to duke it out. And so, you know, whenever it came to the, the, the third fight, the midpoint fight, um, there just was, there wasn't a, a new take. It would have just been more of them beating the shit out of each other, which like, Hey, I mean, like who's going to argue with that necessarily, <laughs> but it just wasn't right. You know, it just didn't work. It's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you, you think more is more, but it's really not, you know, you, you gotta, each one of these things has to really, you know, have an impact and, yeah. um, and, and the best way to do it is to focus it, you know, and, and, and let the, let, let, let the playing field be part of the fight. And the hollow earth playing field was just too much of the same, you know. And that was Adam Wingard or a little bit of the Adam Wingard interview from our Godzilla vs. Kong spoiler special. If you want to hear more, and there's quite a bit more on the spoiler, plus, as I say, four giggling idiots talking about the movie, then once again, go to my pinned tweet, I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter for details of how to sign up, or go to empireonline.com forward slash spoiler specials. But on that note, that is it. That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. It will be less bumper. It will be one part next week because we only have one guest. Uh, and as things stand, that one guest is Natalie Emmanuel, star of a little film that Ben likes to call eee, Squee! Fast and Furious 9. Very, very exciting. That movie is out next week. <laughs> Cannot wait. 
Magnet Plane, Magnet Dom Toretto. Feel like I do. It's going to be Jacob Toretto, Magnet Plane. Oh my God. Han Solo's back Han and he's Solo. alive. Oh my God. So exciting. So exciting. We're going to be seeing that next week and reviewing it on next week's show as well. And do we have a spoiler special coming for that also? Yes, we do. Guys, spoiler specials coming out of our ears. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Squadcast names, Silencio Bruno, Ben Travis. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Parnag Feg himself, James Dyer. Goodbye. It is goodbye from No Me Digas. No Me Digas. Yes. But I'm sending it in the, I'm sending it in the way of a, in the manner of a British tourist on I holiday. See. No I Me see. Digas. Helen it, O'Hara. It burns my ears, which were already full of spoiler specials. So you have caused me pain so today. Many so many specials. So many. So many spoiler specials. So little sleep for Chris. And it's goodbye from me, Hitman's wife's podcaster. I'm off to finish my Batman Catwoman fan fiction. In the Batcave. Nice. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.